Hello and welcome to Identity Talks, the podcast from identity experts. I'm your host, Amy Stokes-Waters, and today we have with me the lovely Christoph from uh, from Conquest Federal. We'll be talking today about the changing cybersecurity space. But first of all, Christoph, would you like to give us a bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Christoph Long. been in IT and security for over 12 years. I say I like to say that I live in the space between risk, cyber, and people in process. Uh, like to advise government and corporations on their digital transformation while minimizing risk in the process. Excellent. Well, that all sounds very uh, very exciting. Uh, so <laughs> one of our, <laughs> as everything is in cybersecurity, right? One of our uh, one of the th- one of the questions I like to ask everyone who joins us on this podcast. Uh, is whether you prefer the term cybersecurity or infosecurity because it seems to be quite a polemic subject and gets people's backs up for some reason. <laughs> so, so I like to start off the the podcast with a bit of a debate on that. Well, I think it depends what which aspect of the subject you're looking at. So, if you're focusing on information security, it's everything inclusive of computers, so physical media, physical paper documents. Um, facilities, everything like that. When you focus on cybersecurity, yeah. now you're mostly focused on the computer and that aspect of it. So I like to use both, um, just with the understanding that people know that there is a difference and they're not synonymous. Mm-hmm. So that does seem to be the answer that I've got back from a lot of people. Although when I posted this pro- this subject on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, literally everyone was just arguing <laughs> like one side or the other so i'm quite glad that i seem to have sensible guests who agree with me uh on that uh on that topic um clearly the people that was that were arguing on linkedin haven't got a clue what they were talking about (laughs) (laughs) well it is it is the internet so you you'll have people with all sorts of opinions yeah that's true i guess uh so we were going to talk today about how um cyber securities the the role, I guess, in the the industry sort of changed over the last few years. So, uh, so the first thing um, I thought we could have a chat about is um, the fact that traditional security practices used to focus on protecting just the network. Um, but how do you think that's changed with the prevalence of digital transformation projects? I mean, obviously, we've gone to sort of a perimeterless world. Yeah, that, that's exactly um, so it. What, you have what, to change what, what your focus your from your your wall and moat um, legacy type environment where you're just focused on protecting the network to protecting mobile endpoints and ideally protecting at the data layer. Um, Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the muscle movement needed for most organizations to start to protect at the data layer means that they need data governance and data classification and those sorts of heavy lifts, which most people would rather just try to throw technology at it, and that doesn't really help. Yeah. So it's not necessarily just the fact that the technology is changing. It's also the fact that they've got to bring the processes in line with the with those changes as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, now you're, you're in a world where you have a mobile workforce. They like to work from anywhere, whether it's their mobile device, the laptop that they can take to Starbucks or the airport or a hotel and work on 
uh, company property. So now you have to be able to mm-hmm. ensure that company property that's on those mobile devices are protected everywhere they go. And as much as device encryption helps protect the data from physical penetration, it doesn't help when they're uploading it to a Dropbox or a Gmail or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We work with um, Azure Information Protection. So that, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've used that before, but that sort of does things around. It classifies at the file level. So if that file gets put into a Dropbox, you can still see who's accessing that file, and you can remove the um, permissions for specific users um, on a on a little portal. So you can still see who's accessing data at the file level. So even if it's not within your network, um, so that's quite a neat little function. Oh, definitely. I, I love um, AIP because um, not only that, but you can set your permissions before um, it gets to that point where you're trying to figure out who's watching it. You can make sure that uh, they can't even look at it to begin with if they don't have permissions yeah. to view the document. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's loads of times where I've got caught, caught, caught out by it myself, so where I've tried to uh, <laughs> send myself a document and then I'm like, oh, crap, this was set as internal confidential, so it's come back and encrypted it. <laughs> It's come back all encrypted, and I don't. I can't send it to myself. Well, that, <laughs> so which proves that it works, though. So that's good. Yeah, exactly. And um, a lot of organizations overlook how much of a possible breaches happen from the mishandling of corporate information, whether it was on purpose or intentional, or just trying to be more efficient with uh, the employees' use of time and resources. A lot of um, breaches can happen like that. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, I've known quite a few companies where they've had breaches because people have, well, malicious, some maybe maliciously, have been sending themselves information so that they could uh, work from home or whatever because uh, the company didn't offer that kind of facility. Although whether whether they whether that was the actual reason they were sending themselves the data is another question. Um, but yeah, I've said so I've known, <laughs> but I have known people get tripped up by uh, by that kind of thing, and then yeah, that has resulted in a data breach. I think that's one of the yeah, one of the things that um, um, security teams sort of miss when they're looking at security strategies. Like I've built the 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 idea that co- that some people want to work from home, uh, so they uh, so they'll send themselves data, but uh, the the security team's been quite uh, overzealous, shall we say, in terms of how they're securing that data. So they're, re- they're refusing to let people. Um, take the laptops home, or they're not allowed to do mobile working, or they're not putting things in the cloud. Um, I think that's create that can create additional security problems because obviously, like we were saying, people put things into Dropbox or they email themselves it, and then the companies inadvertently had a data breach without realizing it. And that's why uh, security needs to be a business enabler and not just something bolted on at the end. Because if you de- develop a resiliency strategy for your organization that ensures that the business mission can continue no matter what, you can design in security and other controls to ensure that business can continue. So whether that's at home, somewhere else, you have those resiliency practices in place and you can better control that sort of access. Um, I think a lot of companies just focus on the security but focus less on the business enablement, which is without the business being there, no one can pay their paychecks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You don't want to be the uh, business prevention team in the security in the security team. You exactly. want to be, like you said, the business, you want to be enabling um, business to happen, but just enable it to happen securely. 
That's right. And one of the things as you move into a um, cloud-enabled or even a hybrid-enabled environment is, say, for example, with sales teams that are becoming more mobile, they're going to have that expectation that um, they will have access to company data so that they can conduct business on the fly or be flexible with their clients. And if you don't adjust to that uh, increased mobility, you're just asking for trouble because users yeah. will find a way. Yeah, I've got um, access to Salesforce and stuff on my phone. Um, but obviously that's protected with our company policies and I've got Intune put on my phone. I've got Lookout on there to make sure that if I am using Starbucks as our corporate Wi-Fi, then there's a VPN sat in the middle of it so it stops um, any man-in-the-middle attacks and that kind of thing. Um so yeah, I working in sales, I do fully appreciate the fact that I want to be able to work wherever I want to work from. And when I'm sat with a customer, I don't want to have to wait to get back to the office to be able to update notes and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's it can security can end up causing it's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy, and it causes itself a security security can cause itself a security problem by by imposing too many security measures. Definitely. And the way security measures should be put in place, they should be put in place in a layered approach. So, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, with with phishing, you can't just rely on um, user training for them to identify every single fish. You have to identify additional controls along the way, um, whether technology controls, training controls to help prevent the ultimate goal of what the fish is to do, whether that is to um, extract information from the organization or cause an action to be done from that organization for Mm -hmm. their benefit. So that could be uh, additional policies and training, verifications, or extra controls on screening the email, screening where it came from, putting extra labels on the email. Hey, this is an external email while it might look like an internal email mm-hmm. or clicking on a link, making sure that the link detonates, making sure that um, it's been white compared against whitelist or blacklist. Um, those extra controls as well as on the endpoint, having the protection there as well. Yeah, I guess it's all around people, process, and technology. That that lovely little triangle that we seem to see in so many security presentations. <laughs> but, but I guess we see it so often because it is the it is the answer to what um to a lot of the security pro- to, to to what should be included in your security strategy, isn't it? So there obviously is the the people element with the training and the processes that you've got to build into your business, and then like you said, there's layers of technology that you can add in there as well um, that can sort of enable people to make the right decisions definitely i I like to say i focus on the people in the process first and Mm -hmm. then i layer in the right technologies when when warranted because first you have to ensure that you have the right kind of people the right skills of people then the right types of processes to enable what you need to do Mm -hmm. and people that understand those processes and then you can use technology to enable or add additional controls where needed yeah yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking around um, different kinds of threats and that kind of thing, what do you think the biggest attack vector is now that we're digitally connected? Do you think it's got identity or do you think it's to do with malware or 
do you think it's mobile endpoints or what what um what do you think is the biggest the biggest risk for for our digitally connected age so i i would say the biggest financial risk that still that's showing itself in the news these days right now is ransomware um but it's the the vector would be email and people so Mm -hmm. it's your people and your process not to click on the link not to open up the attachment not to um do all these things and having the controls in place to patch against these vulnerabilities to prevent ransomware from executing in the environment but i would say ransomware is showing its face to be um, one of those big threats right now followed closely behind um, business email compromise which i don't think gets reported enough because a these companies don't want to admit that they just um shipped on a hundred million dollars off to an attacker thinking that it was their boss that mm-hmm. did it and now they can't recover it. So they don't want, they don't want their shareholders to see that they just did that. Yeah. Did you, um, did you read about the guy who did the deep fake AI um, and ended up conning someone out of $243,000 pretending to be the company CEO <laughs> calling the, calling the, yeah, calling the CFO um, and pretending to yeah, calling CFO pretending to be the CEO, but you'd use like voice recordings to create the um, deep fake. Yeah, yeah, I definitely saw that. And deep fakes are going to become something that will haunt us for a while until we can start to put controls in place to validate the authentic the authenticity of those um, deep fakes, as well as attribution to where those videos or audio recordings come from mm-hmm. to validate that you're not being fooled by something but yeah deep fakes and the use of ai to create on the fly attack mechanisms is is something for the next five years that we will need to start to worry about more yeah definitely and there's going to have to be some kind of new way of authenticating people isn't this <laughs> some kind of voice authentication process well, there's good old walk down the office and go see them in person. Well, that is true. Maybe, but what if they end up bringing out robots that can deep fake, <laughs> deep fake people? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a little too far in the future there, Amy. <laughs> well, maybe. I like to think big, though. I like to think big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, some of the other things that, that you have to, um, that you can layer in is having multiple people involved in the process so even though the ceo tells you hey i need to send a hundred million dollars to so and so okay well i need the cfo and the ceo to sign off on anything more than fifty thousand or a hundred thousand so you have that check in place as well as allowing the employees to question you and to challenge you on requests like that without Mm -hmm. feeling that they would get in trouble because yeah. that's what's happening right now. There's that that fear that if they question the CEO or whoever in power is asking them to make these transactions, that they'll get in trouble. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that culture of security to question something like that, um, it, it'll be a lot easier to go through. Yeah, definitely. I think that's um, I think that's a really good point. Um, like you said, it's all about moving the people, process, and the technology together. Um, when we're doing these kind of digital transformations, so yeah, moving your cultural, your the the way that you 
company culture sort of works um, should also potentially be included in that sort of digital transformation strategy, I guess. Definitely. And everything moves faster in the cloud. So, for example, your, your processes that you have right now for change control or for deployment of software or creation of, of new applications, that used to take six to eight months. Now you mm-hmm. can deploy a new version of an application overnight or in a couple minutes because you just had to change one aspect of a script. But if your change control process only happens every every third week or every two weeks, you can't survive in a cloud-focused world like that. So you have to change your processes to, to match that speed. You would honestly not believe how many customers I talk to where that is a massive hindrance to projects that we want to do. <laughs> we're like, yeah, we can just do this now. Like, sign off on it and we'll do it. We'll start on it tomorrow. And they're like, no, we have a whole change control process to go through. And I've got to get sign off from like nine people. And then it's got to go through a change control board. And then it's got to get another signature. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus Christ, just let us get on with it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And um, you have to update the enterprise security architecture and all of this. So, yeah, yeah I hear you on that. Um, but it's something that organizations are going to have to adapt to. Um, they're going to have to find different ways to have that um, approval mechanism operate at the speed of the cloud, because mm-hmm. without that, they'll have a vulnerable machine out for two weeks while they wait for change control to approve patching it with with a fix that they could have done in uh, a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that uh, the security team might have a slightly different change control procedure to maybe the rest of the business. So, you know, deploying a new application might be, might have to go through the change control board, but hopefully patching should just be part of the standard day-to-day security role anyway, you would think, hopefully. So... When we, so when we think of patching, we need to ensure that we take the business into consideration because while a security patch might fix the security hole, what does it break in the process? Was that mm. a feature or a port or something that the business use and need to continue to use? For example, one of my clients, they have a legacy application. And if we're trying to upgrade their product suite, it breaks that legacy application from functioning. So while, because that office suite is old, technically this newer version is patching it. Um, you, you can't just do that. Um, other, other times I've seen um, patches would say, for example, turn off SMB by default, um, where some older applications still rely on SMB. So you, ha- you have to go through mm-hmm. that, the change control board to really talk about all the risks that would happen from patching. If it's really straightforward, it should be a quick call or a quick conversation. Um, but if it's a, a major patch that changes many variables in the environment, um, it could require that much more consideration. Yeah, and I guess you've got to outweigh the risk of um, the security flaw that it's uh, that it's patching, um, and the risk of it potentially knackering up some of your systems that you've <laughs> you've got that you've got exactly. set up internally as well. Because if it's a ma- if it's masking a massive secu- if it's covering a massive security hole, then you know if your business is wide open to I don't know whatever kind of attack, um, sometimes you just need to patch it, right? 
And that's why it's it's a business enablement. So does the business see more risk in leaving that open or does it see more risk in closing it and then the organization's not being able to function as intended? Yeah, but do you think a lot of these, um, like you were saying, the examples that you gave there were all to do with legacy applications, like old, I'm guessing it's old infrastructure, old bits of hardware um, that, that is breaking? Yeah, I mean, so it, definitely old infrastructure, old legacy hardware. You you still have lots of corporations that are still using mainframes. You have health institutions that um, their MRI scanner runs on Windows XP, but the only way that yeah. they could get one that, say, runs on Windows 7 or Windows 10 would be they have to buy the new version, and that's a mm-hmm. two or $300 thousand dollar machine just so that the endpoint that runs it um runs the latest os uh they're not going to want to do that yeah that's uh i guess <laughs> i guess when you put it that way that's fair enough um and obviously with a lot of uh smaller businesses as well if they've got legacy applications that they might have spent a lot of money implementing especially things like crm systems that cost a lot of cash um or HR systems, or if they've got finance systems in there that are, that are sitting. I mean, I guess they're the main ones that you that you see sitting on legacy, um, that the sort of legacy sitting on prem on old servers. Um, they can't afford. They just can't afford to upgrade it or to move yeah, it to the uh, cloud. And even for example, if they invested a lot in workflows in SharePoint, um, custom workflows, custom forms. All of that's going to have to be rebuilt if they want to, say, utilize SharePoint online for that flexibility and that scalability. But they're going to have to reinvest all that time and effort and cost in redoing all that in the new environment. Mm-hmm. I guess it's something that businesses are just going to sort of have to start sucking up, though, really, isn't it? Like the cat at some point that the old infrastructure or the old hardware is going to fall down so you've got to you are, I guess you're outweighing the risk of is this going to fall over anytime soon yeah yeah you have to think about um is it going to age out if it breaks if there's a power surge if there's an earthquake or a hurricane or whatever there is and it's oh, we're in the uk we don't get all that kind of stuff over here <laughs> you can get hurricanes a couple times uh, no, I think we we, got, we had a, we've had a few floods. I don't think we've ever had a, a, a proper hurricane or anything like that, though. We, we, uh-huh. Sometimes it snows. That's about as okay. bad as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> We're not as exotic as you guys over the pond. Uh, yeah, well, we have everything from um, Arctic zero storms to hurricanes. So we have a lot of DR planning and business continuity planning that we need to do. Yeah, it's all... Um, America is so very dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, there's there, there's a lot that you can do to prepare yourself, and there's a lot of formality and bureaucracy that can go in to make sure you do it properly, but that can also yeah. become a hindrance and tie you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but I can well, I can see exactly why you guys need to have big DR plans, like you said. If you've got hurricanes and typhoons and whatever else twisters there's loads of films made about all your weather right (laughs) definitely definitely um the the other thing that i wanted to touch on is so developing new strategies as you conduct these digital transformations you have to rethink your architecture kind of like we were talking about in the beginning um 
yeah. before you used to have everything enclosed within your network and it was all fine and dandy, but now you're utilizing on average, most companies, whether they know it or not, they're using at least five or six cloud services. Um, whereas mm-hmm. your larger corporations, they're using hundreds of cloud services and many of them, they don't know about it until they put in something like a CASB and that just alerts mm-hmm. them to the problem. And then now they have to think about how they're going to solve it. Um, so it, it really does involve rethinking shadow IT. Yeah. You can use your credit card and, um, sign up for a new service for the company, use their domain name for it. And if there's no controls or no enterprise agreements, um, with those companies, they're the ones that own it. Mm -hmm. And that, that can be a risk. Um, the other thing to think about is, um, designing your applications to function in a cloud environment. Um, if you lift and shift your legacy applications into the cloud, it might end up costing you more than if you were running it on-premise because you haven't optimized it to the cloud. Um, you can take some of your applications, shift them to app services, or shift them to using load balancers or scaling appropriately versus yeah. a huge machine that you might have had on-premise that you don't really need in the cloud, and you might be spending three or four times as much than you actually need in the cloud. So if you don't have the governance for checking in on that and making sure that you're optimizing your compute and your spend, uh, it can cost organizations more than if they were on-premise. Yeah, I worked with a, I worked with a company previously who uh, someone had scoped out their Azure environment. So on-premise, they had 256 gig, meg, whichever the right one is, um, of space on their uh, server so obviously in Azure they needed the same thing <laughs> except quite clearly they didn't need the same thing because the on-premise version was only using two percent of the storage yeah. <laughs> so they scoped out this massive machine in Azure that we were paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds for um, and using two percent of it but obviously in Azure you can't downgrade the the size of the box you have to upgrade it so it involved the re um to reprovision a different server in Azure, then it had to get transported. They had to like have downtime to move all the data off the old one onto the new one so they could deprovision it. And it was just a nightmare because someone hadn't sat and thought through uh, that process properly. Yeah, and the obviously thing, not at the governance um, in place. Yeah. The, the other thing when you're moving to Azure or any cloud offering, they don't think about whether they actually still need the data. They might have data from 10, 15, 20 years ago, but do you still need it? Are you going, do you still need to pay top notch for SSD storage or even regular storage for data that you might not have touched in 10 years, but there might be a a regulatory requirement? Is that something Mm -hmm. you can put in, say, a cold storage tier versus a regular storage? most companies um, might not think about the different storage tiers and the different offerings available. Yeah, and I think it's that whole dark data piece. If you're storing data that you're not using and that you don't, well, and a lot of the time, like you said, companies don't even really know what the data is because it's that old. It's still an attack vector for um, for someone who wants to try and hack you. Um, mm-hmm. And you're not even if you're not if you're not thinking about where it's stored or how you're storing it or what that data is, you don't know whether you put in the appropriate security controls around it. Um, so yeah, it's just another, it's just another, it's just another headache for the for the security team. 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you secure it at the highest level, it costs the business too much. If you secure it mm -hmm. at the lowest level, uh, you don't have the appropriate storage on there. So it's definitely that business muscle around your information classification and identification that needs to be done prior to going to the cloud, at least at a high level, it needs to be done. Um, it might not be at the finite level, but I'm sure at the high level, you could probably remove 40 or 50% of the data that you have on-prem that you will no longer need, or you don't need in the cloud if you're still retaining a hybrid infrastructure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, the things that people, I used to work for a dynamics consultancy and the things that people used to want to track about the customers and you'd be like, why do you need to know what the middle name is or what high school they went to or the shoe size or the birthday or what, you know, just meaning that what mostly meaningless information when you think about it. Um, but they've obviously got to spend money securing that data and that data by, by adding all those attributes to the different contacts or meaningless bits to the account, like the industry code and all that kind of crap. Um, it just increases the size of that database exponentially as you're adding more records to it. And um, yeah, then you've, got the, then you've got the issue of securing it. And like you said, as soon as it moves to the cloud, you've got the issue of the, the cost of the cloud storage as well. Yeah, don't even get me started on the tracking and how much these companies track on you because that's a whole separate half hour that we could go into. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for series two, we'll have that one. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Well, and on that note, I think it's probably about time we wrapped up. Um, but yeah. it's been absolutely delightful chatting to you today. And um, I hope that over in America, you aren't getting any typho typhoons, cyclones, hurricanes. Because <laughs> uh, right now we've got awful rain and wind. So it's like our version no. of a hurricane. Yeah, it's actually perfect weather, fall weather today. Um, probably... Mm, 15, 20 degrees Celsius up in the 60s, 70s. So not too bad over here. Very nice. Well, I hope you have a lovely afternoon and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks, you too.